So we are um, continuing our series. We've got two or three of these left. We're, we're doing a series on the, the vision and mission of our church. And if you're visiting with us, usually our practice is kind of to work through books of the Bible. We're taking kind of a break for that for, for a couple of months to, to, to lay out some of the, the vision we have as a church here in Spartanburg. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about this idea of, of beautiful worship, beautiful worship. And you're going to see several texts there in your bulletin that I'm going to read through for us in just a second. Fifteen years ago, Susan and I were visiting family members in Atlanta, and we went to church with them on a, a Sunday morning. And I, and I think it was during the lead-up to communion that the drummer started playing what sounded like the theme to Shaft. Now, if you don't know what that movie is, it's a 1970s movie it's pretty classic. It was remade in 2000, starring Samuel L. Jackson. And if you don't know what the theme from Shaft sounds like, just think 70s funk, okay? And that's what started playing right before communion. And I remember thinking, man, I kind of like this song, but it's not really getting me in the frame of mind for communion here. Fast forward from that to about four or five years ago. Uh, we were visiting another church with a family member, and there was a musical prelude, and we all started kind of looking at each other because the, the song sounded real familiar, but we weren't exactly sure what it was. And then one of us said, is that the Avid Brothers? And then somebody else said, I, that is the, what is that? Oh, that's murder in the city. If I get murdered in the city, don't go revenging in my name. One person dead from such is plenty. No need to go get locked away. And so, so that's, that was the song that was playing during the, the prelude for worship. And I was just kind of like, I really like this song. I don't know that this is getting me ready for worship. Okay? We're, we're going to talk about, we're going to try to talk about beautiful worship this morning. And I tell those stories to kind of acknowledge on the front end that a lot of times when we start talking about worship and singing, it really can feel like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Because somebody thought it was a good idea to, to have those songs and thought that would be a part of beautiful worship, and others of us were kind of like, well, I don't, I, don't, I don't know about that. So I'm not expecting to end all of the worship debates this morning. Uh, I don't expect to create a set of guidelines that somebody's going to look at a little bit later and go, oh, okay, thanks for clearing that up. Now we know exactly what beautiful worship should look like. But I do, want us, I do want to help us try to think through why worship matters, why it's important. And I want to give us some, some things to think about that hopefully are going to put us in, uh, give us, help us to think about the, the right trajectory, point us in the right direction for what beautiful worship might look like. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read our value from the front of the bulletin. And then we're going to read several texts here related to worship. So if you look on the front of the bulletin, beautiful worship. We worship a beautiful God, and we want our worship to reflect the beauty of our God. We gather to praise Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to confess our sin and to confess our faith, to be reminded of the gospel, to sing hymns both old and new, to lift up prayers to hear God's word proclaimed, to baptize, to partake of the Lord's Supper, to encourage one another, to go forth with God's blessing. Now, if you'll look with me in your bulletin at the scripture reading, there's several 
passages we're going to read from this morning. Uh, The first one is from Psalm 33. This is God's word. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Then from Romans 1, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Psalm 115, Our God is in the heavens, He does all that He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, Noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Verse Peter 2, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. John 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. 
You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. And finally, Psalm 27 One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Let me pray for us. Father, we we want to see that you are beautiful. Um, our, Our vision is often very obscured when it comes to that. So please, Father, show us yourself this morning that we may indeed worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a big topic, um, but let me, let me set this up by saying a couple of things to give us a, 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 as far as the big picture goes. Number one, what is worship? Like what exactly are we talking about when we delve into this subject? What is worship? John Frame defines worship as the work of acknowledging the greatness of our covenant Lord. D.A. Carson defines it this way, worship is the proper response of all moral, sentient beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to their creator God precisely because he is worthy, delightfully so. Worship involves bowing before God and acknowledging his greatness. So, There's a definition for us to work off of. You'll also notice as you're reading through the Bible, there's kind of two ways the Bible talks about worship. It talks about what we might refer to as scattered worship. And and what I mean by that is this. This is worship in the Romans 12.1 sort of way. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There's a sense in which every moment of our lives is worship. We are always either worshiping or failing to worship. But there are also those set times when God has called his people to gather as his people to worship him, what we would call gathered worship. It's what we're doing right now. And while there's some overlap in these two categories, it's primarily gathered worship that we're thinking about this morning. So those are my preliminary ramblings. There's, there's two big points this morning. One, why does this matter? Why is gathering for worship important? And then secondly, how do we worship in a way that's beautiful? So, so why does this matter? And then how do we do this in a way that's beautiful? First of all, why does this matter? Why does gathered worship matter? I'm going to give you Several reasons on on both of these points. Why does it matter? Number one, God commands us to gather and to worship Him. The fourth commandment is, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Leviticus 20 verse 3 refers to the Sabbath as a holy convocation. And all through the Bible, you see God calling His people to gather together and worship Him. So one of the reasons this is important is because God says it's important and He calls us to do it. Secondly, 
God deserves our worship. God deserves our worship. Uh, Many of you have invested financial resources to help various charitable organizations in town. And I'm guessing that before you did that, you that you investigated that organization a little bit to see if you thought it was worthy of you giving your financial resources to. When you come to see a performance here at the Chapman, you probably want to know, is this going to be worthy of me spending an evening here uh, in the Chapman? After it's finished, you you have to make a decision. Is this worthy of me standing up and applauding? And so the question before us is, is God worthy of our worship? Is he worthy of our worship? Is he worth our setting aside one day in seven to come together and to worship him? Is he worthy? And all of Scripture gives a resounding yes in answer to that question. Revelation 5.13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Uh, Chris Tomlin, a song many of you know, sings, Is He Worthy? Is He Worthy of All Blessing and Honor and Glory? Is He Worthy? Is He Worthy of This? He is. He is. And I'm not going to go back through Psalm 33 line by line, but I would encourage you to, to take that. That was the first text we read. And maybe work through that this afternoon, and you'll see all of the many ways in which God is worthy of our worship. We gather and worship him because he's worthy of our worship. Thirdly, why does this matter? We're made for this. We're made for this. Uh, Romans 1 tells us they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We're made to worship God. And when we refuse to worship him, it's not that we won't worship anything because we're made to worship. And so what we do is we erect God's substitutes in his place and bow down to those. We take some aspect of the creation and inflate it to God-like proportions. And we make that thing the thing that our life revolves around, whether that's money or sex or power or, or pleasure. It can be almost anything. In fact, the most dangerous ones aren't necessarily the most obviously immoral ones. They're college football and our jobs and the political parties that we devote ourselves to and our hobbies because it's harder to see the way in which those things have taken the place of God in our lives. In John 4, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that God is seeking people to worship him. God is seeking people to worship him, to orient their lives around him, to give him the blessing and honor that he is deserving of. John Piper says that missions exist because worship doesn't. Do you ever think about that? Missions exist, evangelism exists because worship doesn't. When we share the gospel with someone, our hope is not that they're just going to check a box and agree to a set of facts and therefore feel comfortable about their eternal destiny. Our hope is that they're going to embrace this good news about Jesus and become worshipers. God is seeking such. He is seeking people to worship him, that they will become who they are made to be. 
And that's, you know, that text from 1 Peter as well. God has called us as his people to do what? To celebrate his praises, to declare his glories. It's who we're made to be. It's what we're made for. Fourthly, why does this matter? Why does this matter? Worship shapes us. It shapes us. Uh, Psalm 155, those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Speaking of, speaking of idols. Uh, listen to what N.T. Wright said about this. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship, not only to the object itself, but also outward to the world around. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than as human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. Those and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and of those whose lives they touch. We become like what we worship. We become like the, the things that our lives orbit around. Or, or let me say this a slightly different way. Um, all week long, you and I are being catechized. We are, we are being taught by the voices in our culture. We are being taught and trained by talk radio and BuzzFeed and Twitter, and, and the list is endless. And this is the one time where you get to kind of gather as a people and, and you get to be equipped to, to think about those messages biblically. This is the one time where we're kind of snapped back in the reality of what's really important and who it is we're worshiping and who it is we are to worship and what is really important in life. Worship shapes us. Worship shapes us. Fifthly, worship encourages us. Ephesians 5.19, address one another, or some translations say encourage one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Hebrews 10.24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Um, imagine going to watch your favorite team by yourself. You're the only one in the stadium. And, and what that experience would, would be like. Now imagine going with the stadium filled with, with all of your fans, singing your team's praises. Now think about it, what it's like when the voices of God's people fill the sanctuary. And there's something different about that. There's something encouraging about that. There's, there's something about God's people meeting together and corporately singing his praises. But not only does that bring joy to God, but that brings encouragement to each one of us. 
Sixthly, praise is the logical consummation of knowing and enjoying God. Uh, When C.S. Lewis was first starting to believe in God, he said that the calls to worship in the Psalms were a stumbling block for him. He didn't understand why God needed this. Why do you need us to be praising you all the time? He, He said it made it seem like God wanted our worship like a vain woman who wants compliments. And then he said this, and look on the, look on the front of the bulletin. This is, this is a little long, but I think it's helpful. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wine, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Underline that one, come back to that. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so do they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable what we delight to do, what we indeed can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that those are the same thing, that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Can can you imagine going to an incredible concert or a play, and being moved by what you're seeing, what you had seen or heard, and not standing up to applaud, and not telling anybody about it, or going to a, a great game where your team won on the last play of the game, and you just sat there, you never told anybody about it, you never talked to anybody about it. Praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. Praise of that concert is is fitting if it's been a great concert. Praise of God is fitting if we are God's people and it completes our enjoyment of God.
Wow, that's a list. You can go back through that and think through that. Those are some reasons why this gathering to worship as God's people actually matters. Let me talk now, second point. How do we then, with that in mind, how do we worship in a way that's beautiful? How do we worship in a way that is beautiful? Well, one, we try to do it well. We try to do it with excellence. We try to do it thoughtfully. Uh, Imagine if you're an artist who's been commissioned to do a portrait of a famous person, and you just grab some crayons on the way and draw a stick figure when you get there. Or maybe you show up and you, you take some time, but you just... You just do an awful job because you don't really care that much. Or even worse, if you draw a caricature of that famous person. Our God is a beautiful God, and we don't want our worship to be this unthought-out process of just grabbing some crayons and drawing a stick figure to reflect who he is. We don't want to present a caricature of our God. We want our worship to reflect the beauty of who our creator is. We try to do it well. Uh, Secondly, we have to remember that we're worshiping him. We're worshiping him. Now, maybe this is, I mean, you're like, well, that's a painfully obvious point, Justin. Um, But we're worshiping him. We're not creating an experience to consume and critique. And I actually think this is one of the places where we struggle the most in our culture uh, with worship. We tend to look at this as an experience like a, like a concert that we've been to, to kind of analyze and grade, you know, <clears throat> were the seats comfortable? Was the message interesting? Was the music good? Were the people friendly? And, and I'm not suggesting that those things don't matter. We want to worship in a way that's engaging. We want to worship in a way that's culturally relevant. But the, at the end of the day, worship is about us presenting praise to God. It's about us presenting praise to God. It's about what I give to God, not so much about what's in it for me. I think that's, that's very hard for us to get our, our heads around. But that leads to my next point here. Because of that, we want to follow his guidelines for what we do in worship. Beautiful worship is worship that's beautiful to God, right? Um, but think about it like this. If I love golf and Susan doesn't, and every year for Christmas, I give her, give her a new golf club, okay? Don't get any ideas, man. But every year for Christmas, I give her a new golf club. That may be beautiful to me, but it's not really beautiful to her. It's not really something that that she enjoys. When I give her that gift, I need to make sure that I'm speaking, as as we would say, I need to make sure I'm speaking her love language, right? Make sure this is actually something she would enjoy. When I present worship to God, I want to present him with something that he will actually enjoy. I want to speak his love language, if I can put it like that. Well, how do we do that? How do we worship in a way that, that God enjoys? Has, has he told us how he wants to be worshipped? Well, yes, actually, he has. Is there a page in the Bible that lists, you shall do this and this and this, and you shall do it in this order, and it shall take this long? No, there's, there's not a page like that. But throughout the Bible, we see God instructing us in the things that he would have us to do as we serve him in worship. Things like singing, 
and praying and confessing our sins and celebrating the Lord's Supper together. So when we worship, we're not just like picking a bunch of things that we think, well, that we might enjoy doing that. We're trying to incorporate things that we see God's people doing in the Bible into our service. We're trying to worship according to God's guidelines. So let me walk through some of the things we do in a worship service, all right? So what's the first thing we do every week? We have a, we have a call to worship. We have a call to worship. Think about that. In a, in a secular age in which people doubt the very presence of God, we are starting out each week saying, God is here. God is here. In weeks in which we ourselves are prone to forget God because of our busyness and activity, the call to worship is saying, it's time to lay all that down and come into the presence of God again. And so we're, we're called to worship. What else do we do? We read the Bible and we teach from the Bible. In a world that says, well, God isn't really there, or if he is there, he doesn't have anything to say, we are saying each week, God is there, and he is not silent. He has spoken. He has something to say, and we want to hear from him. A third thing we do every week, we sing his praises, and we do that together. We take out our isolation earbuds for an hour or so, and we sing his praises together. Uh, We do that using songs that are rooted in Scripture and what the Scriptures teach. We do that using songs that are old and songs that are new, recognizing that hymns written 500 years ago might have something valuable to teach us, but also realizing at the same time that cultural styles and taste can vary over the years. And so we try to make use of what is old and is good, and we try to make use of what is new and is good, while all at the same time trying to avoid cultural snobbery. Well, our our music is obviously superior to their music, or thinking that only music that fits my preferences is what is appropriate in worship. Uh, We don't want to be either the traditional playlist church or the contemporary playlist church, but we sing his praises. We confess our faith. We confess our faith. In a world that denies truth, we say each week that certain things are good and they are true and they are beautiful. When we confess our faith, we're uniting ourselves with the voices of Christians all over the world and Christians who have lived before us. We confess our sins. Uh, In a world in which we are caught up in an endless cycle of self-improvement, Uh, A world in which we are constantly having to present our best selves and cover up who we really are. We get to come one time a week and be completely honest about who we are. You know, if if you're week after week, you can't tell people who you really are. You feel like you're constantly covering up. There's one time each week where you can come together and you can be absolutely honest about the brokenness in your life and we confess our sins together. Uh, After that, what do we do? We pronounce an assurance of forgiveness. We remember the gospel together. We remind you every week that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. If you are in Christ, despite your sin, 
you are forgiven. And your sins don't have the last word about you. And what so-and-so said about you on social media doesn't have the last word about you. And that grade that you made on your test doesn't have the last word about you. The gospel has the last word about you. That you are loved and accepted in Christ. And you get to hear that every week in the assurance of forgiveness. We pray in a world that's all about despair. And if you can get out of it, you have to fix it yourself. We cry out to the one true Savior. After a week where we've once again tried to control our lives and shape everything and control everything, and we've figured out, I actually can't do that, we fall on our knees once again and acknowledge who the true Savior is. We lament. We don't act like everything's just fine. We baptize. We celebrate new life in the midst of of death. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. We taste and see over and over again that the gospel is true and that Jesus really does love me and that my sins really are forgiven. We give tithes and offerings. We let go of our treasures each week and trust God to provide for us. We receive the benediction. We go out with God's blessing. We go out with God's smile, knowing that we are loved. Well, we try to, to make worship beautiful. We try to do it in the way that God would have us to do it. What, what else do we do to try to make worship beautiful? Just a couple of things. We seek to exalt Him. We want the spotlight to be on God. I'm reminded of a note I've seen taped in pulpits before that says, Sir, we would see Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus. We want our worship to exalt God. Fifthly, we want to be engaged with our hearts and our minds. Worship, Jesus tells us, in spirit and in truth. We want to think rightly about this God that we are worshiping, but we don't want to just go through the motions with no heart engagement. This is not just an intellectual exercise. We want our hearts to be engaged. We want our hearts to be engaged, but we're not just looking for an emotional release every week that isn't grounded in truth. This is not just an emotional exercise. We want to be engaged in our hearts and in our minds. And dare I say, even in our bodies. Yes, Presbyterians, um, even in our bodies. Psalm 63, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will, do you know what comes next? Lift up my hands. Lift up my hands. Lift up my hands. Come on, come on, we can do this. Come on. Hey, okay, all right, good. If you read the Bible, you find people in worship lifting up their hands, lifting up their voices, they kneel, they even dance or at least sway vigorously. Um, and, and listen, lifting up, your hands can actually help you to praise when you don't really feel like praising. Kneeling might help you get in the frame of mind to pray when you don't really feel like kneeling. All right? John Calvin said, For why do men lift their hands when they pray? Is it not that their hearts may be raised at the same time to God? Or Eugene Peterson 
You can lift up your hands regardless of how you feel. It is a simple motor movement. You may not be able to command your heart, but you can command your arms. Lift your arms in blessing. Just maybe your heart will get the message and also be lifted up in praise. Well, last thing. How do we make worship beautiful? How do we seek for our worship to be beautiful? We want to tell the story of the gospel. We want to tell the story of the gospel. Um, Our service from beginning to end, is designed to point you to Jesus by telling you the story of the gospel. And the gospel is always a beautiful story. It's always a beautiful story. The gospel is a story about a Savior who seeks out Samaritan women who have been married five times and are shacked up with the sixth man. And he finds them and he forgives them and he restores them, and he turns them into beautiful worshipers who more and more reflect their beautiful God. And that's who we are. We're Samaritan men and Samaritan women who have shacked up with every idol that we can find, but Jesus found us and forgave us and is restoring us and is turning us into beautiful worshipers who more and more reflect the beauty of our beautiful God. What if, what if you and I believed that? What if we believed, when we, when we read that John chapter 4, what if we believed, I'm the woman at the well? This is not just an example for how I'm supposed to do evangelism, but I'm actually the woman at the well. But Jesus found me, and he intends to make a worshiper out of me. How would that change the way you prepare for and prioritize and embrace and enjoy worship? How would that change you as you walked in here each week? If you walked in here thinking, I'm that, I'm that woman, but God loves me and gave his son for me. You know, I, I was just thinking, maybe it's not so much what songs we sing or how we sing them but who we are becoming as singers and who we reflect as we sing. It makes worship beautiful. Let me pray for us. Father, please help us. Our, our hearts, we just get distracted by a lot of different things. So I pray again, Father, that you would show us yourself. This is a supernatural thing. Show us yourself and show us your glory and show us your beauty so that even in the smallest way, we might begin to reflect that beauty back to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our next song, um, which is new, new newish to this congregation. We haven't sung it here for a number of years. Um, So the band will sing verse one, and if you know it, feel free to sing along with us. If you don't, Um, Join us on verse 2. And just a note that the last three lines of each verse, um, we sing those twice. So let's stand and worship. Praise my soul, the King of heaven. 
Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took, took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
Here at Grace, we observe the Lord's Supper every week. Now, why do we do that as a part of our worship? Well, one of the reasons is this. We are all of a Samaritan woman, and we need to hear the gospel every week. And we need to see the gospel every week. And we need to taste the gospel every week. So the end of each service, that's what we do. But we see that Jesus has come for Samaritan women, Samaritan men, sinners of every size and shape. He's coming to give, he's come to give himself for us. And he invites us to come and to partake in that story again and to be renewed and refreshed and restored and shaped into the worshipers that he intends us to be. So if you need that Jesus, if you need that Jesus, then come and taste again and see that he's good. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks for this sacrament. Thank you for the bread and the wine, which points us to Jesus' body and blood given for us, given for us. And that what Jesus has done, Father, please remind us, is final and complete. And we can't add to it, and we can't take away from it, but it is ours simply by faith. So help us right now as we drink this bread and this wine to grab hold of this by faith one more time and the rest in this gospel story. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.